Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. What I want to do today is to introduce to us uh, a new series based on the book of Acts. This was supposed to be a big announcement, but somebody let the cat out of the bag a few moments ago. <laughs> cat out of the bag. Isn't it interesting? They don't say, talk about dogs out of the bag. They just, it's cats out of the bag. Why do cats need to be in a bag? I'll tell you what. No, I won't tell you what. <laughs> okay, anyway. What I want to do is introduce us to this new series based on the book of Acts and to essentially talk about what's going to happen over this next few months, this next period of time. What's going to happen in your life if you are willing to come on this journey with us. We're going to immerse ourselves in the book of Acts over the next few months and to really do that, to be fully participating and to glean everything that the Spirit would have for you in this, it will just be a helpful thing if you determine now to join with us and to read through it yourself, even following along week per week as we go. Very briefly then, I want to walk through what's going to happen in your life if you do. At least five things that are going to happen in your life and my life as we go through this journey together. And the first one is this. You will gain an intimate acquaintance with the most prominent character in the book of Acts. So I want to start out by helping you become very clear about who it is that is the most prominent character in the book of Acts. And to do that, we've got to back up the truck a little bit. Last week, in a very real sense, we already began this series as Pastor Stefan focused on and celebrated with us the events that took place and are recorded at the beginning of Acts in the day and on the day of Pentecost. It was most appropriate, of course, because last Sunday was the day of Pentecost on the Jewish calendar. Now, if you'll tread water with me for a moment on this, I'd like to flesh out some of the background around the first couple of chapters, and in several weeks, we're going to pick up the thread and go full bore for the rest of the summer through this series. Okay, now we turn to Scripture as an introduction by looking at the beginning of the book of Luke for reasons that will become clear in just a moment. Luke, the first chapter, the very first four verses, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 says this, and it's a preface for where we're going to go. It's an introduction to his gospel. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too, Luke says, after carefully investigating everything from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Now you see that the author of this gospel, Luke, is not casual about what he's writing about ostensibly to his friend Theophilus. And of course, I mean, who wouldn't want to be introduced in a letter as the most excellent, right? I just love that part. Like, I just, Luke is obviously a man who not only is a, a doctor, which we're going to find out, but, but a, a person who cares for people. He's, he's relationally integrated with these people. And so, my most excellent friend. Isn't that just a great way? How, let's use that when we're talking about our friends. So that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Now, so he begins this, and of course it's ostensibly to Theophilus, but by extension, it's to all of us. He's done some very careful research. It just doesn't just drop down on his lap from heaven. He is at some pains to get an accurate account, an historical account, if you will, of what Jesus has been up to 
and what happens after Jesus ascends into heaven. Now, over to Acts, the book of Acts, the first chapter. Nowhere does it say, I, Luke, also wrote this book. But check out how Acts begins, chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, that name ring a bell? What I wanted us to see here is that the writer of the book of Acts is the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. I don't want to digress into discussing clues like style of writing and so on, but there is one tiny little word I'd like to ask you to be on the lookout for, for all the way through this book. And it's a two-letter word. It's the word we. The author obviously includes himself as a witness and participator in much of the history that he records. He's an eyewitness. And we know from various references in the Bible that Luke was a companion and friend of Paul in particular. From Colossians 4 and other sources, we know that Luke was Greek, not a Jew, trained as a physician. In that day, there were only three places of higher learning, universities, if you will, where you could receive medical training. In Alexandria in Egypt, Athens in Greece, and Tarsus in what we now know as Turkey. By the way, Tarsus still exists. You can look it up on the map. Scholars conjecture that Tarsus is the most likely of the three where he received his training, in part because of the evidential likelihood that Luke was originally from Antioch, and so this wasn't that far away by those standards in those days. Everything was far away, but compared to Athens and, uh, and Alexandria, close. It's of interest to me that in Acts chapter 9, verse 11, Paul, before his conversion, is introduced as Saul of Tarsus. Maybe they met in Tarsus when Luke was studying. We don't know. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, there's a, a real key word there that has real significance, and I want you to get that into your head here as we, as we focus on Luke and the, as being the author of two books here. Luke says here, I wrote about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach, and the reason that he uses the word began is crucial. I want to talk to you about the things that Jesus began to do, that Jesus began to do and teach. It's because he wants us to understand that what Jesus is doing and teaching is not over yet. It's not over yet with the end of the Gospel of Luke. It's what he began to do. The book of Acts is a continuation, therefore, of Jesus' ministry. But now it's actually going to be done by the church, through the church. So Luke wants to say, if any of you are under the mistaken impression that the exciting part was over with the end of the Gospels, with the end of the Gospel of Luke, if you felt that the story was pretty much done and written, just wait, he says. You ain't seen nothing yet. The ministry of Jesus is just beginning to take off. You see, in the first volume that Dr. Luke wrote, it was all about God, about God becoming incarnate, God becoming flesh, God coming to earth in the flesh and blood form of Jesus Christ. But there's a new main character in the second volume that Luke writes about. Do you know who it is? It's not the Apostle Peter, although he's certainly a major player in it. And it's not the Apostle Paul, although we've all heard so many times, particularly if we've gone through Sunday school, about all the missionary journeys that are recorded in the books of Acts. He's not the predominant one either. Anybody know who the main character is? Yeah, 
It's the Holy Spirit. It's God, the Holy Spirit. Luke's first volume is all about the activity of God the Son. His second volume here is all about the activity of God the Holy Spirit. In fact, it wasn't until sometime in the middle of the second century that the book of Acts got tagged with the title, The Acts of the Apostles. That's actually what the title is. We just shorten it now to the book of Acts. But in retrospect, I think they could have done a better job with this because really it's the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? It's the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit that are recorded all through the pages. Someone once said, if a church is not supernatural, it will be superficial. And that summarizes the book of Acts very nicely. Now, there is an interesting incident toward the end of chapter 1 that illustrates the difference for us. Because of the suicide of Judas Iscariot after he betrayed Jesus, there was an opening among the 12 disciples. They were down to 11, and this was another transition and tremendous change that they were going through. You think about it for a second. They're not only grieving the loss of Jesus at this moment, but they were friends with Judas. And after what he did a messy death, a whole messy circumstance to grieve and to kind of mourn that whole scenario. But now they have this open position. And they choose two very qualified persons as good candidates to fill that. And then I want you to look at how they made the final selection beginning in verse 24. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Hint, hint. Then they cast lots. They prayed. They asked for, you know, help us. And then, and then they cast lots. It's like they throw dice. And the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. Like, seriously, think about this. How crazy is this? They're facing one of the biggest decisions they've ever made, and it's just like they roll the dice and they say, come to Papa, come to Papa. Oh, it's Matthias. There you go. And that's how they selected him. This is like the club regent style of prayer meeting. <laughs> now, why is that so hard for us to comprehend? This is interesting. Think about this for a second because this is going to affect how you look at the whole book of Acts. Why is it so hard for us to comprehend that? Why would they choose Matthias that way? You know what it is? It's because, and this is very cool, because we can't imagine having to make a decision of that magnitude without the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet and they didn't have the Holy Spirit to guide them yet. And they hadn't experienced his supernatural energy and direction and guidance and power yet. And you see, after Acts 1, after this verse, you'll never find them casting lots again to determine God's direction. Why? Because in Acts 2, the Spirit came. In Acts 1, they're anticipating what God might do. Friends, this promise in Acts 1-8 is a very personal thing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. So the first thing that is going to happen to us is this. We will gain an intimate acquaintance with the most prominent character in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit. The second thing that is going to follow right behind that first thing is that 
knowing the Holy Spirit is with us is nice, amazing, wonderful, but that only becomes really significant when we choose to obey his promptings, when we allow him to fill us, when we empty ourselves by confession of the things that are filling our tank the wrong way, and we allow him to move in and fill us. Jesus, in explaining what they're about to experience, doesn't say, hey, there are really cool things going to happen. You are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to feel so good about it that you're going to want to go home, sit in your rocking chair, and ponder this amazing feeling of power that you have. No, of course not. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will, not maybe, not when you've reached a certain level of maturity or amassed a number of credentials after your name. Simply, you will receive and you will act. You will act. That's our part. Acts is us. It's in the book of Acts where Jesus' disciples first encounter the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit, frankly, who even in the first place gives us the power, the strength, the endurance, and the faith to obey. And his coming is described as sounding like the blowing of a violent wind. So I'm asking you to follow along with me here for a moment on a train of thought, on a short word study, and the journey the Holy Spirit took me on titling this message, because if I was to title this message, I would call it swoosh. No, that has nothing to do with the NBA finals on right now. That's swish. This is swoosh, okay? If you at all are athletically inclined and into athletic equipment, you will have made an immediate jump for me, pardon the expression, to the stylized symbol, a swoosh, right? That has been made world known by a certain company as part of their logo, accompanied by their motto, which interestingly enough is, just do it, just do it. But some of you may not know that swoosh itself is not something just made up by this company, but it is in fact actually a word found in our dictionaries, which according to Webster's means, Swoosh, to make or move with a rushing wind. Acts 2 opens with Jesus' followers waiting in the room in Jerusalem. Perhaps it's the same upper room, we don't know, where just 50 days prior they had shared the Passover meal together with Jesus before he was arrested and crucified. It has now been 10 days since he told them to wait, and then he ascended bodily into heaven. They humbled themselves and they waited, to their credit, deeply dependent, deeply desperate for a supernatural touch. And do you know that it is the, the absolute best position you can ever be in life to be in that position? To be desperately needing, to be desperately, de desperately dependent on a supernatural touch from God. So they are probably about 120 of them jammed into this little room. While on the streets below, the streets below are also jammed with thousands of people. There's a festival going on in Jerusalem. It's Pentecost, kind of like our Thanksgiving without the shopping and the turkey. But it's a thankfulness for the harvest. And the scripture says, suddenly, no sign, no warning, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Check out last week's message if you want to hear how Pastor Stephan so brilliantly unpacked that. The one that Jesus had promised would show up just showed up. A real important word 
forward, forwards into that little paragraph is the word like. Friends, you need to know the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He is not a gentle breeze or a mighty rushing wind. He is not a mysterious vapor. He is not a vanishing mist. He is not a ghost. Okay? Reminds me of a story I was talking to a pastor once, and he was talking about another pastor who had just led somebody to the Lord and was ministering to him and discipling him. And every so often, the guy would say, I'm, 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 I'm on board with this. I'm getting this. But this spook thing, I, I don't get it. The spook thing. And the pastor's going, spook, spook, where'd you get spook from? And he, he's just like at wit's end. Like, why does he keep bringing up spook? Until finally the guy says, well, you know, the holy spook. Oh. See, we get these kind of, we've used these words because we can't actually identify something physical, right? So all these words come into play, the breeze, you know, all these sorts of things. But Holy Ghost just kind of takes people off in some kind of la-la land. He is not a flame. He's not a junior partner in the Trinity. He's not the third-string quarterback that comes in when the other two have done their bit. The Holy Spirit is God. And when it talks about the wind blowing in that room, wind all the way through the Bible represents the Spirit of God. In fact, the word pneuma, the word for wind, is the word used by God that means breathed life into people. But doesn't wind help us visualize the invisible? We can't actually see the wind. Try this with someone young and say, can you see the wind? Almost always they will say yes. And then you ask, well, what did you see? I saw the trees bend over. I saw the grass move. Those are results of the wind. They are not the wind. We are to show results of having this spirit within us. We can't actually, like, oh, yeah, here he is. Here's the spirit, right? It's actually not a bad illustration. But as long as we don't get caught up into it thinking, oh, he's the wind. No, the wind is an illustration of the person of the Holy Spirit. Wind helps us to visualize the invisible and mysterious movement that he does. And we can see it. We can see the movement that he causes. Jesus said in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it pleases. Same word again, by the way, wind, pneuma. The wind blows where it pleases, and sometimes it just comes up suddenly, doesn't it, he says. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everything, everyone, or every, everyone born of the Spirit. Same word again, pneuma. The word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word. And throughout the Old Testament, whether it was a burning bush for Moses or whether it was a pillar of fire to guide the people that he was leading through the wilderness, fire denotes God's divine presence. So with the wind and with the fire, the Holy Spirit ignites each one of these humble, desperate Christ followers on that day. He gives them brand new hope and power and life. And friends, it wasn't a group experience. It was an individual experience. It wasn't, you'll all receive power, just and, you know, some of you, you know, just kind of carry on with the rest, vicariously, you'll catch on. It's one of those, you, and 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 you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and they did. And when they did, they were able to do something that they couldn't do five minutes ago because someone came from heaven and invaded them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, where the Spirit is present, there is vitality and energy and freshness and joy and power and courage and peace and compassion and grace and real life flowing freely. 
He is able to ignite in you a passion that you never thought possible. He is able, he is able to enable you to do things you never imagined that you would be able to do. So for the moment, I'd like your help in using swoosh to identify all that, to bring the Holy Spirit's work into our obedience so that we have the power to, if you'll pardon the expression, just do it. In our context, we might word it, do the acts, right? That's what we want to do. We want to do the acts. The people in Acts 1, they're a pretty unimpressive group of people. Didn't exactly have the best track record in the world so far. These were tremendously flawed individuals. They battled insecurity, fear, brokenness, all kinds of mistakes in their past. But again, the promise was a very personal thing to each of them. You will receive power. Do you know what I think many of us do? I think many of us take ourselves out of the spiritual game because we don't experience God's power in the same way that we see it in someone else. And we think, if I can't do what Pastor Stefan does, if I can't do what she does, I must not have the power. Friends, remember, this is a highly personal, highly individualistic thing for you. Listen again to these words from the lips of Jesus. You, you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So I'm going to ask you, first of all here, insert your name after you. Insert your name in there. Swoosh. Just say it to yourself in your mind right now. You, you, Lauren Pearson, just say your name. You, Lauren Pearson, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You, swoosh, swoosh. Say it with me. I would give about anything if I could just personalize these words to you. You who serve as greeters or ushers, you who come early no matter the conditions, in the heat, in the cold, in the rain, in the snow, you, say it with me, swoosh. Come on, swoosh. You who work behind the scenes in kids' ministry when our children aren't the saints we think they are, swoosh. You who have those embarrassments, those goof-ups in your past, you who think God is, is, is somehow exempting you or you can't be used by him, swoosh. You who, you who are attempting to have that spiritual conversation with your neighbor, with that person that you work with who's so far from God and you feel so ill-equipped to enter into and to have that conversation with them, swoosh. You who are building into our youth or shut-ins or who have so many needs and you're meeting them and you have so much love to give, swoosh. You who think that God has given you a role that doesn't matter because it doesn't appear to you to be a big thing, swoosh. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you in times of change, in times of uncertainty, in times of transition, swoosh. Anticipate supernatural energy that's going to come your way. Swoosh. The third thing that will happen in your life when you go on this actual journey, as you will seek, is you will see community in action. And we will practice community. We will study community and we will practice community because the book of Acts is all about the story of the birth and growth of the church. When the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit empowers, enables, gives birth to the church. It's community as God intended it. And community is not a vague thing in the book of Acts, as we'll discover. It's not a general feeling of goodwill towards all people. It does not just involve behaviors. 
Take a look at this series of verses in the book of Acts, and the one word that just runs through it like a thread that describes a particular behavior of the community. All these were constantly together, devoting themselves to prayer. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And a couple more verses from Acts 4. Now the whole group of those who had believed were together in one heart and soul. And the next chapter, now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon colonnade what's the word that just keeps running through it over and over and over again together historically when God moves in mighty ways the people of God face life together they don't just go to church they face life together they do life together yeah they meet but they do life together they draw life from each other in being together in the ministry in the mission there's a kind of explosive energy that comes. I was reading about this church in the early centuries of, of its existence, and I just wanted to read a couple of lines about the church in those early days. It's actually a quote from a magazine. I didn't know this actually existed until I found it. There's actually a magazine called Christian History. Who knew? See if it reminds you of any churches that you know of. It's speaking. This is a description of the church a few hundred years after the Pentecost in the 300s AD, as published now, and where I got it from, this Christian history magazine. And it talks about what it was like when the people would gather. This is 300 AD. In those days, the, thought, the author says, indeed, until modern times, people did not sit in pews when they worshiped. Instead, they stood. If you ever wondered about standing in worship, a long, long, long precedence for this, or walked around greeting people and exchanging news. It was to such relatively unruly congregations, lively congregations, if you will, that the teacher spoke to. And the people often responded to the teaching with applause or on occasion, yeah, booze. It happened. You will think that I'm making this up. I'm not. There's a record of one church teacher in those days that observed that Christ didn't seem to have to contend with ill-disciplined ears, unruly behavior, but the disciples always waited quietly and politely until he finished. So this teacher, his name was John Christostom, concluded in his sermon to the church he was pastoring that all applause should henceforth be forbidden. And this announcement, as you might guess, brought a huge response of applause from the people. <laughs> so there it is, historically. In the book of Acts and throughout the history of the church, this truth that people of God draw life, explosive energy from being together, and the heart of the new community is a passionate desire for glory and worship and praise. A sub-point of this that's going to happen as we go through this journey, we're going to learn through studying in the book of Acts how in this body, how followers of Jesus deal with conflict and tension in a way that builds community instead of destroying it. Pastor Stephen just talked about this in the membership covenant. The book of Acts is very candid, very blunt about the fact that people of the early church were ordinary people just like us. This was a group of people that was unified, however, in a common language. Do you know what the common language was? It was prayer. It was prayer. Does that mean they didn't have disagreements and conflicts and differences of opinion and relational bruises? Of course not. They had all kinds of conflicts in the church, all kinds of problems and tension, but they dealt with them in a way that preserved the unity and they kept themselves together. At the turn of the century, this last century, 
NASA lost $125 million Mars Climate Orbiter. It just disappeared. It was on this journey to Mars. It just disappeared. Hasn't life been incomplete without daily weather reports from Mars since that happened? I mean, really. They lost it because one set of NASA engineers was working with metric measurements, and another set of NASA engineers was working with imperial measurements. Can you imagine? They weren't on the same page. They didn't have the same language. Friends, these are indeed rocket science, rocket scientists, right? A little closer to home, I was, years ago now, I was out in the field in our farm, just uh, on the edge of Netley Marsh before Lake Winnipeg, and I don't know for sure, but I remember actually being out swathing right then and actually getting a glint in the sky and wondering, what was that? Why? Well, that seemed kind of strange. That was the day the Gimli glider landed in Gimli, for those of you who are old enough to remember that. Do you know what happened? They ran out of fuel. Why? Because the guy who was putting in the fuel was measuring it one way, and their, their tank was measuring it another way. And I ran out of gas in midair. Friends, if you're not on the same page in the same language, we've got to be talking the same language. We've got to be talking in prayer. And the language that unified the church, the language that brought the church together was prayer. And when the church is not uniting together in prayer, we can break up or flame out or both. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what was the heart of Jesus' prayer? What was at the top of his prayer list that night as he went to the garden and fell on his knees? He was praying that all those who follow them, all those who believe, would be one. They would be unified. That's what he prayed for, our unity. And so here it is, a few weeks now later in time, and they're waiting for supernatural power, and they're unified, and they're in prayer. I don't think for a moment then, if you think about this, they're unified, and they're in prayer. Just what Jesus was praying that they would do, I don't think it's a coincidence what happens next. There were deep tensions among them during and after Jesus' ministry, sharp divisions and conflict among these strong-willed people until they were together on their knees, fully open to God and each other. The Holy Spirit could not be given. See, I have never known a contentious group to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, nor have I ever seen a church in which division and disunity prevailed receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit within their midst. As congregations, we cannot be empowered until we are of one mind and one heart, until we love each other as Christ loved us, and until we heal broken relationships. Can I be very specific for a moment when I say those words? If you can look around right now, your family or this room or wherever you find yourself, and you can see someone that you have an unhealed relationship with, you are impeding the power of God in this church. These first followers of Christ, they got together and they healed their relational wounds. And as a result, God revealed himself to them in ways that they never imagined and never had before. And God worked in them and God worked through them and among them and they ended up changing the world. As you and I go on this journey together, one of the things that's going to happen is that we're going to practice community. Fourth thing that's going to happen as we go through this series, you are going to be challenged to become winsome and fearless crusaders and activists in the uncontainable, unquenchable, unrestrainable spread of the gospel. Acts 17, I'm not going to take time to look at it today. You can look at it later. But Paul is in Athens now. He goes to a place, meets with a group of pagans there, and he goes through an explanation of the gospel to biblically illiterate people who are totally culturally unchurched, but who are interested 
in what he has to say about God. He puts the language and what he says to them into their setting, into their language. He doesn't even quote scripture. No lightning, good. He quotes some of the philosophers that they recognize. He affirms their looking, their interest, their seeking. And then he contextualizes the gospel for them. Read it, Acts 17. This early church was built on an unconditional commitment to spreading the good news, actively sharing the gospel. And the challenge level as we go through the book of Acts is just going to be huge in this area, folks. Let me show, see a show of hands on this one. Real honestly, real confession here. How many of you have ever held back from sharing your faith when somebody else, out of, with somebody else, out of fear, either that you thought you might be rejected or you might get embarrassed or that you might make a mistake? How many of you at least once in your life have shirked back, held back from sharing your faith with someone? Show of hands. See, my hand is raised too, right? All right, now, listen to one of Paul's receptions from people. Now, Paul's in front of a group of people. He is proclaiming the gospel to them, and this is what they say, Acts 22, 22. Up to this point, they've been listening to him. And then he says something, and they shout, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Now, how many of you have ever had a worse reception than that when you tried to share your faith? Let me show a hands on this one, right? How many of you, after sharing the gospel, had somebody say, the earth ought to be rid of you? Are you interested in becoming winsome and fearless crusaders and activists in the uncontainable, unquenchable, unrestrainable spread of the gospel? Then join us in this journey. Final thing as we go through the book of Acts, you and I will be encouraged, we will be nurtured, we will feed off the triumph of hope over hardship. The triumph of hope, not just any hope, but a certain kind of hope, the hope of the gospel. And this goes right through the end of the book, chapter 28, verse 30. Paul, in the sections of the book of Acts leading up to this, Paul has been in prison, he has been bitten by snakes, he has been shipwrecked, and now he's facing death. He is in Rome, and as far as we know, that's where he dies. So if you look at it in terms of hardship, it's just kind of gone off the rails for Paul here the whole way through. It's just gotten from a, from a worldly perspective worse and worse and worse. But look what it says, verse 30. He lived there, that is in Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I mean, I just get shivers thinking about that. All boldness and without hindrance. If anybody had a right to go, oh, woe is me, my, my tenure is done, it was Paul. No, I'm going to share the gospel. And in fact, I've got guys chained to me here. They can't escape. The hope that is going to fire us in this series is not a hope that your own little agenda, you know, that you can get the right kind of house or the right kind of job. It's not about our little private agendas, this book. It is the hope of the gospel. It is the hope of the triumph of the gospel before us in writing. Lord, help us walk with you through this. Help us guide us, guide us in all we do. We ask together, we seek, we receive. Lord, help us keep this faith through every trial we face, 
together we run to finish the race for you, for you.